This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African American studies survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. Now let's get into it. Warrington, did you know that I started out in college as a computer science major? (laughs) Back in the day when I was a student, and of course, you know, I'm an immigrant, my parents wanted me to be in a major that would, of course, make what? Money. They didn't care about, you know, what my passions are, you know, career, what are you interested in? You know, what are your goals? No, they don't care about that. They wanted to get that that bag <laughs> you know they wanted that that mm-hmm. skrilla they wanted that money right, right. so they wanted yeah. you know they at first they wanted me to be in medicine right and whatnot like i couldn't even dissect the frog in high school the whatever they had the frog in would like make me want to throw up what eventually got me they were relentless But what eventually got me to history was that I couldn't pass trigonometry. When I couldn't pass trig, my parents was like, hmm, second choice, lawyer. (laughs) And that was what got me to history because history as a major funnels, of course, many people into law, right? Um, Similar investigative work, you know, mining evidence or whatnot. I was allowed to go back to my original passion, which is history, you know, go back to what I love, which is storytelling, listening to gossip, you know, listening to people and their stories and black people's stories, um, listening to stories. Um, I'm passionate about the underdog stories and how they over, you know, overcome their adversities. And so that is kind of how I got to black history. I mean, never mind, growing up in Jamaica, you are surrounded by that, you know, the Rastafarians. Mm-hmm of course, are always talking about history, right, as a part of their warfare against Babylon. Um, Marcus Garvey is often touted all of this history kind of circulating in an informal way. But that's kind of how I, you know, I was immersed in Black history. But when I got to college, that was the trajectory. So, Warrington, were you a computer science major too? (laughs) What did you start (laughs) in college with? I actually was not a computer science major, but... Um, interestingly enough, my mom was, whenever I told her that I wanted to go to college, she was like, oh, you're going to be a computer science major. So oh she my thought God, I, they I must was going to be a computer science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she thought I was going to be computer science, but I quickly, quickly sh- shut that down. Oh my goodness. So, so, okay. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. So what did you want to be when you came to college? I honestly really didn't know. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I think my mom wanted me to to be a computer science major was because Arkansas had this like big push towards STEM. Oh my um, God, STEM, and, and, like, STEM, what everything. Are, what are the things? Yeah, STEM, everything. One of the things they were they they were really big about is like we got to have our kids to be able to code. 
what are we coding? <laughs> what are we coding? <laughs> you know, I barely under I, I barely knew how to like unlock my locker code. Like, I, let alone that like, you wanted me to code. So I, I had no clue. Coding and STEM didn't really sound interesting to me. You said you made it all the way to trigonometry before you found out that it wasn't it for you. I was in I, C++, the highest plus, math my I took friend. Was probably. Yeah, I think the highest math I took was college algebra. You know, um, I think I maybe had algebra two, but but that, when it came to calculus and trigonometry, that was for the nerds, not for me. So I had no clue what I wanted to do. So I came in my first semester undeclared. I took some random classes, like uh, I took a French class, a um, intro to music theory class, an intro to American national government. Um, but I was almost a business major, and if I didn't like figure anything out. I would have instead of with being like business admin or something like that. I, that that's what I figured. It, since I was here, I was like, if I can't do anything else, I could at least do business. Oh my god! Do not talk bad about business majors. Are you trying to say it's like, oh, <laughs> I, if I can't do anything else, I'll just be a business major. <laughs> business major. What do they do? What what, what do they do? <laughs> This week, we're talking to Warrington Sibri. Mr. Sibri is well-rounded, obviously ambitious, and accomplished as a student. Recently graduated from the University of Arkansas with a Master's of Arts in Political Science and a Graduate Certificate in African and African American Studies. He'll be starting the prestigious Howard University Thurgood Marshall School of Law. And we've had a very extensive history um, between us, I met Mr. Sabri back in 2017 in the fall semester when he took my Intro to African and African American Studies course. He also took my readings in African and African American Studies graduate seminar, which is the core course for the graduate certificate um, in African and African American Studies this past spring before he graduated. But in any case, I discerned right away that he was an extraordinary gentleman and through, you know, the course's various assignments and spending way too much office hours, too much (laughs) office hours, he alone (laughs) gave too much extra work. He revealed himself to me as a brilliant, innovative, and a driven um, young man. And of course, this is something that is very important to African African American studies. Students have been instrumental, as we've discussed before in previous podcasts, in the making of African African American studies as a discipline. So understanding students' perspective is extremely important for African African American studies and for this podcast. Now, um, Mr. Sabri focuses on, um, while he was at um, in the graduate school at University of Arkansas, on, on domestic political behavior, um, civil rights, African American politics, critical discourse and literature of, you know, marginalized cultural identities, and how that is all affected by the political system. So, we're extremely happy to have someone who is very close to not only the program here at the University of Arkansas as a former um, graduate assistant to the program, but someone who is deeply immersed in the study and in the work in the community, the activism that African African American studies embraces. So, Warrington, welcome to the show that you've helped to create. <laughs> well, <laughs> Yes. Wow. Thank you for such a, a great introduction, Dr. Bannon. 
as someone whom I, you know, like you said, the plenty of office hours I look up to as a, as a mentor and as a teacher, of course, it just is an honor to have, you know, worked with you since, you know, back then. And you saw that we, you know, a coming of age in a way that we probably will talk about some, but uh, it, I'm ser- I seriously, I'm really honored to, to have started the podcast with you. I thought, thought it was a great idea. And now that I sit on the other end of the table, I'm looking forward to it and, and having some fun today. So I appreciate the opportunity. So let's pull up, as we say in Jamaica. Let's haul and pull up, right? Let's back up for <laughs> okay. a second, right? I want yeah, to ask yeah. you, because, you know, I went to Grambling. GS, GS, GSU. Please don't become like um, Dr. Baptiste with this um, Howard (laughs) swagger. That's annoying, okay? But I'm familiar with the SWAC rivalries and everything, and I know that the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff is not far away from Little Rock, where you're from. You had an interesting process in choosing where you wanted to go to school. And if you don't mind, I think it would be something fascinating for our listeners. Like, how did you end um, end up as a Razorback and end up at the University of Arkansas before deciding not to be a dry a dry business major. <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually yeah, I don't mind at all. I actually enjoy this opportunity and I would say if there's, you know, any, you know, undergrads or prospective students that are considering coming to the university or thinking about some of, you know, the schools within Arkansas, this is definitely the place to be. So turn it up because I think you might be able to relate whether directly or indirectly. But it was a very interesting process um, coming into undergrad. Um, I didn't, again, know what I wanted to study. And that was part of the reason probably that my, my parents, particularly my mom and my grandpa, were you know kind of on me about where I wanted to go because I think they saw it as I'm just kind of doing this as a whim. And of course, they knew that I would figure it out. But for the amount of money that would be spent at a, on, a, on a college degree, um, and, you know, the, the resources that I did not have in terms of funds, um, they were they were a bit concerned. And so you kind of growing up as a kid in, in, in Arkansas, you kind of just grow up with this affection towards the University of Arkansas. It's just kind of this thing where I think that all babies like come out and like they're calling the hog instead of they're crying. They're just like, <laughs> like, they, they, like this just happens in children's hospital. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, but we grow up and we see the, the Razorbacks, they come to Little Rock, you know, once a year, they come to Central Arkansas, they come to War Memorial Stadium. And uh, I grew up, you know, with some of my white friends who were able to afford the tickets uh, to be able to go with them to the football games and seeing, you know, the Razorback marching band and seeing them put the uniforms on and, seeing them playing for the state and of course Arkansas not having any professional sports teams or anything to really root for in general. Um, <laughs> it was just kind of like, I always dreamed of being able to go to university of Arkansas because it seemed like if there was anything that was going on in Arkansas, it was that basically, you know, fast forward to whenever it was time to make the decision. I had, you know, the university of Arkansas, Pine Bluff, like you said, uh, that, you know, wanted to offer me uh, a full ride basically. And, you know, they were, I was in the band. I auditioned for the band for both bands and I made both of them, but UAPB was seemed a little bit more financially stable. Um, and then U of A seemed a little bit more, you know, I was going to have to figure a lot of things out on my own. There were, there were questions that were going to be unanswered. I had scholarships, but I didn't really have everything covered and, and the, you know, living situations and, and whatnot was all, was all kind of in the air. And so you know, I, I still ended up choosing, you know, the University of Arkansas, despite me not having a full ride and not despite me not having a plan, you know, again, of what I wanted to do once I got there. 
I just knew that I wanted to go to U of A because of the look, I guess, essentially. But I found so much more. But the interesting thing, I think, that that was a part of this process was I, I kind of defied my parents a little bit. They thought that they knew I was going to UAPB. Like, they, they thought there was no question about it. Warrington's just going through this phase where he's just trying to, you know, rebel. And, and he's going to eventually come to the senses that we're going to be able to convince him that, you know, He'll, he'll be good at UAPB. And they tried a lot of things. They were like, oh, Warrington, you'll be able to maybe like buy a house or you, and you'll be able to do these things by going to UAPB. And, and those things may have been true, um, but I, I had it in my mind that I wanted to go to, to, to the University of Arkansas. I didn't know what I was going to do, but it ended up working out. And I say all that to say, you know, I think for a lot of kids out there that are, that are especially growing up at the U of A, you know, there's a decision that we all kind of have to make, you know, going to the, to the flagship institution or, or maybe you know, not, not even just University of Arkansas Pomp Bluff. Um, there's like Arkansas Baptist, there's Philander Smith. These are all um, historically black colleges within the university or within, you know, the Arkansas system. Um, but it's just, you know, what exactly do you want to do? And so I chose my PWI and now we're here. So thank you for sharing that. So um, you made that decision and you chose the state's flagship university. And, you know, now that you're on the other side, what did, what, how did you find that decision? How was the experience of being a black at a historically white supremacist university? Well, I think that it was, it is exactly what you would expect from a phrase like being black at a historically white <laughs> supremacist institution um a lot of things that you that you see or i guess the question being what did, what did i find now that i'm on the other side i found exactly what i what everybody told me that i was going to find you know the racism the the isolation the imposter syndrome the invalidation you know, all of those things were, were found. But what I also think that I found was myself um, in a lot of different ways. And so that sort of isolation and being sort of uh, pushed out and, and sort of forced to stand out, uh, you, you sort of, you know, learn a lot about yourself um, during those times. And so I think what drove the decision ultimately was, was sort of a, a dream that I sort of got sold on. At a particular time, you know, you come into the university and and really all you see is whiteness. So, I mean, and I mean that not to really sound like, oh, like there's just nothing but white people at the university, because that's obviously not the case. That would be too general. But what you see is when you come in, you see the main streets and they're lined with these houses and, and you're 18, 19 years old. You don't know what any Greek letters mean. You don't know what Kappa Sigma means. You don't know what you know, five, what do you know? You don't know what any of those things mean. You just see these big houses. These big houses these that are great, on the main thoroughfare of the university. Exactly. Right across the street from the football stadium, right across the street from um, the school gym, right across the street from the cafeteria. Right across from, from the first about, building on campus from Old Main. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Within seconds of these, of these spaces, very, very visible. And you hear, uh, you know, you watch movies and you hear a lot of things about these crazy college parties. And there's this image that is sold that if you, you know, get um, within, you know, the good graces of the, the white people, the white students that are in these, you know, organizations that, you know, you're going to have the best time of your life and you're going to be able to be with all the time, get different types of people and just have a great time to say, to keep it uh, tame, I guess. So that, that image is kind of sold to us. And then we get here and they're like, who do you know here? <laughs> they're like, they're like, you, you, you want to come in these doors? 
nah, man, nah, 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 nah. Either you pay a whole bunch of money and we still might not let you in or, or you, you keep it stepping. And so you're just kind of stuck. And so what I found, again, on the other side was that basically shit ain't, shit ain't sweet. <laughs> it's not as sweet as, as, as they made it seem. So the social and the kind of communal within those, uh, you know, fraternal organization is not as welcoming as you, you thought they would be. No, no. And I mean, actually, you know, we could, we could talk about this a little bit too, but very briefly, I mean, I, I tried to join one of these fraternities and we can keep it unnamed and, and whatnot, but some people may know, some people may not. But I mean, there's a lot that, you, that goes on behind those doors that you would not know. Not you mean know. you, you yeah. joined a white fraternity? Yes, Dr. Van, I did. I did indeed. Um, no longer affiliated, I will say. No longer affiliated. Um, however, yes, I did. I, did ha- I was at one point in time a, a member of a white fraternity. Um, and, and let me let me also say, you know, like this is this is not some sort of vendetta that I have against this group of guys, because um, some of these guys are still, you know, good friends of mine and they were going to be good friends of mine, whether I was in the fraternity or not. But, you know, this is just, you know, in general, I know that since it goes on around people like me that were in these you know spaces, they definitely go on around in those spaces where there are no tokens, where, where it's just white guys. So. This is nothing new and, and people that would maybe listeners that are surprised to hear that like white people act racist around only white people. This is this is this is nothing new. Okay, that's the social side. So back to the academic side. What made you take your first African and African American studies course then, Warrington? You saw a meme on social media? What happened? <laughs> no, I think what it was honestly was I didn't know, first of all you know, you come into to the university as a black student, you don't even know that we have African-American studies. That's, that's, that's one of the first issues. I probably would have started there um, had I known there was an intro course. But I, found, I, think I, I think it was that I found the course first. And then I was like, huh, I wonder, you know, why nobody told me this, this existed. You know, your advisor doesn't do a very good job at that. So anyways, I found the course and it was, it was after the election and, you know, I was just trying to learn a little bit. You know, I felt like I wanted to see what the university had to offer in terms of telling history. I mean, as a black kid, you growing up, you know, especially within the black church, you learn some aspects of history, but, you know, of our history, but not, you know, anything that you might want to, that you might remember, you know, as you, you know, get older. So I wanted to refresh and then also just sort of see what, what was going on to, you know, better be able to explain some of the things that happened in, within my lived experience. And, and that's exactly what I found in, in the first course. And actually, my first course, of course, was your course, as you know, but for our oh, listeners. Oh, dear, not the baptism with Dr. Benton. That's a tough thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what, um, what stood also, out you know, to you from that, from, from that course? Well, a lot of things. But really, you know, as we talked about, the big, the big thing that stood out was with Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. The book that I read in your class as a young black man in, in the white space wearing, you know, khaki shorts and, and, and boat shoes, <laughs> reading ta Coates for the first time, just having my, just feeling like, you know, he's writing this letter to his son, just feeling like I'm his son. And I'm just like reading this letter, like, you know what, dad, you're right. <laughs> I need to stop doing it. I need to so when he said, go. when he said, here is what I would like for you to know. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. You felt that in your soul? 
I was like, Dad, like, why are you talking to me right now? And actually, actually, if you don't mind, I actually had a, I looked back at the book that I, that I had. I still had some, some, some pages marked. And I had this highlighted part that I was going to read if you didn't mind. No, go ahead. He says, when I look back, I know that it was then getting the message from all over. By that time, my friends included a great number of people with ties to different worlds. Make the race proud, the elders used to say. But by then, I knew that I wasn't so much bound to a biological, quote-unquote, race as to a group of people, as these people were not Black because of any uniform color or any uniform physical feature. They were bound because they suffered under the weight of the dream, and they were bound by all the beautiful things, all the language and mannerisms of the food and music and the literature and philosophy, all the common language that fashioned like diamonds under the weight of the dream. Not long ago, I was standing at an airport retrieving a bag from a conveyor belt. I bumped into a young black man and said, my bad, without even looking up. He said, you straight. And in that exchange, there was so much more of the private rapport that can only exist within two particular strangers of this tribe that we call black. In other words, I was part of a world. And looking out, I had friends who too were part of other worlds, the world of Jews or New Yorkers, the world of Southerners or gay men, of immigrants, of Californians, of Native Americans, of a combination of any of these worlds stitched into, into worlds like, ta- like tapestry. And though I could never myself be a native of any of these worlds, I knew that something so essentialist as race stood between us. And I saw that what divided me from the world was not any thing intrinsic to us but the actual injury done by people intent on naming us intent on believing that what they have named us matters more than anything we could ever actually do in america the injury is not being born with darker skin with fuller lips with a broader nose but in everything that happens after in that single exchange with that young man i was speaking the personal language of my people it was the briefest intimacy, but it captured much of the beauty of my black world. The ease between your mother and me, the miracle at the Mecca, the way I feel myself disappear on the streets of Harlem. To call that feeling racial is to hand over all those diamonds fashioned by our ancestors to the plunder. We made that feeling. Though it was forged in the shadow of the murdered, the raped, the disembodied, we made it all the same. This is the thing that I have seen with my own eyes. And I think I needed this vantage point before I could journey out. I think I needed to know that I was from somewhere, that my home was as beautiful as any other. And I have that entire section highlighted in my book because when I read that, I was just like, you are from somewhere. And it really did change my life. You could feel the force of James Baldwin and the fire next time in there and the sensuality of, you know, the force of life, of black life and, you know, being present in that moment and, you know, and and finding the intimacy of all these things, right? Um, Absolutely. Because, as you know, he took the, the... title from that book from from Baldwin, where Baldwin says, all the fears with which I'd grown up and which were now a part of me and controlled my vision of the world rose up like a wall between the world and me.
it seems to me that, man, you came here and did some real unstudent-like work. Like you're finding yourself, like you wrestled with some real personal problem. Like we send you to school to become a worker, Warrington. How did how did you have yeah. time to be thinking about all this, you know, deeply, <laughs> you know, human being kind of stuff? Well, it's it's really fascinating. I think um, I I sort of just started leaning into some of the literature and and reading this literature and learning, you know, where I come from and and the significance and and the history that that you know comes behind you know just black skin in general. That is how I sort of began to understand how to navigate this white space. You know, again, saying from time I was knowing that I come from somewhere. Um, and as black students, I think that we come into these predominantly white spaces, you know, if we go through the traditional university route, 18 years old, now that I'm, I'm 24 and people still tell me that I'm young and I know that I'm young, but at a, as an 18 year old, we were children, literally children. Trying to find None community, trying to find comradeship. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. None of us have any idea of who we are. And so not only are we trying to find ourselves within this institution, we're also enduring a, a coming of age, uh, a coming of being and figuring out, you know, who we are as human beings, which is, is a very, you know, complicated process that, that can lead to some very complicated outcomes i think and with a resource or community or you know to serve you what it must be like to go through this you know finding your identity in the midst of having to survive this kind of overwhelming whiteness i mean at the university of arkansas 4.4 percent currently black students in a state with nearly 16 percent so what was it like going through all that. How did you find your tribe? Some trial and error. So, of course, you know, like we said, I, I tried that fraternity route. Um, that was not my tribe. Uh, and, and I had, you know, plenty of people before that process, whenever I was like telling my, my folks or whatever, like, oh, I'm going to be in a white fraternity. Okay, you're going to figure it out. They're going to, they told me that these things, these were the things that I would find. But again, I had to go figure it out myself. So, one through trial and error. But I think that it, it's very complicated in trying to find your tribe. Because, first of all, you have to find it. <laughs> you know, like what you just say, 4.4%, not everybody's going to be visible. And, and once, you, once you get onto campus, you got to find that 4%. Um, and it's, it's very difficult. It, it can be, especially depending on where you come from. If you don't know anybody or, you know, where exactly you come from in terms of, you know, you're in relation to Arkansas. So it's difficult. There are so few of us. And so the diverse, the diversity within amongst us um, is intensified. And, and as a young student, as children, we don't even sort of understand that there is diversity within blackness yet. We come from, you know, these hyper black communities where this is how you are, you're black. And if you're not doing this and you're not black. And so believe it or not, there are factions within black students. Even so, like even, even within the four point whatever percent. You know, you have your Greeks, you have your nerds, you got your athletes, you got the laid back folks, you got the uptight folks, you got the international folks. And so the diaspora is represented in such a concentrated space that there are oftentimes large misunderstandings amongst us within, you know, these predominantly white spaces. You know, there is this separation that, that we kind of force between ourselves 
as we all try to find ourselves individually, um, which makes it extremely difficult to build solidarity within the community. Well, we're happy and grateful for, you know, good outcomes. And now you're in a place where you're going to have great experiences and take on a new dimension and become a senator and just donate a lot of money to the program. So, okay. (laughs) The thing that leads us now to, as our good brother Walter Rodney used to say, our segment called Grounding With My People. Here we want to talk about some of the key things that you've been involved in Warrington. And certainly one of those things was your involvement in the various um, protests at, at the university. The most visible probably was the Black at York uh, protests and the movement of the Black Caucus to get certain things changed at the university. Tell me about your work with, you know, efforts with Black at York and that campaign. Yeah, I guess we can maybe start a little bit from the beginning. Uh, you know, being involved on in student government on campus as an undergrad, you sort of learn and you see very easily the the disparity and, and, and the huge gap in, in terms of, you know, what is available for Black students on campus. And here's a very good example. On the Associated Student Government Senate, this is the university student government legislator. There are predominantly, of course, white students on the Senate. Um, You get elected, you know, via your college, or you can be elected at large as as well. Um, But it's by, you know, just strictly number of votes, whoever has the most votes and and in rank order. So you have X amount of spots, and whoever gets the highest, you know, amount of votes via those spots gets seats. So as a black student, you have 4.4% of, of the student population that sees your face or sees you as a black person. And some of them, they, they couldn't care. They could care less if you're black or couldn't care less if you're black. And so it's very difficult to build that sort of base that some of these individuals who I was a benefit, I benefited from this as well, to be able to just say, hey, ex-fraternity or ex-sorority, I'm running for this. And I, I'm, I need you all's vote. And, and then you'll have automatic, you know, 70 to 100 people to just vote for you. Mathematically, you, you are just unable to beat that as a, as a black student with no social organization to tie your name to. Right. You're just out there standing outside of the student union like, hey, vote for me. And nobody knows who you are. So that's one thing. And so I got involved to try to spread some more visibility to, you know, do some work. Um, and, and within these spaces, within their using their resources as well, which is our student fee money, um, and, and started to try to spread that word to other black students to let them know that they're also capable and able to get into these leadership positions. And they should want to be in these leadership positions because they're handling our money. That's a, that's a more difficult thing to, to accomplish. And so we've had plenty of incidents on campus. There was a blackface incident when which our student government was talking about. Um, and then in 2019, before the Black Student Caucus, uh, Black at York thing happened, there was an incident where right after the murder of George Floyd, there were some university students that reenacted the scene of the murder and they posted it on Snapchat. And then there was limited response from, from our university and that, that satisfied us as students to also know that there were consequences that, that followed the, the photo or whatever. And so we decided to come together. There were, there were a few you know, students that were already sort of meeting to want to, you know, address some of the discrepancies. We knew that, that, our, that our Black population had disappeared from even whenever I came into undergrad, the, the Black population decreased. 
visibly you could tell that there were just less of us there and you know the faculty that weren't there and and so there were so many things and and the conduct board that were not handing down harsh enough sentences or or consequences to um, these students that were doing blackface and, and doing all these different hate crimes and hate speech that we wanted to we wanted a response from the university to address these issues and so we created the black student caucus and it was a goal of trying to bring in black students from all across campus that we talked about within the diaspora of, of blackness to sort of build some solidarity and then put some pressure to change some of the institutional issues and so after the george floyd incident or the murder of george floyd and then the, the students um did that on snapchat we went to twitter and we got to sweden um, using the hashtag Black at UARC to tell our experiences about experiencing racism on campus, the things that we've seen, the things that people have said to us, um, the things that we've had to, you know, endure silently, you know, alone, um, in isolation, to to shed a light on uh, not only these things that are happening that no one is talking about, on top of the things that that we that we do see. So you see this viral thing go with George Floyd. You see that happen. That goes viral and people are like, oh, that sucks. That's, that's terrible. But there are so many other stories. There are that everyday just, indignities yeah. that black people have Every to suffer. Day. Exactly. Exactly. So not only sharing, shedding the light on, on those experiences, but just also shedding the light on the community that we are here and that we are not afraid to use our voices. And so that's the start of, of how we, of how we, you know, began to, uh, you know, make some waves, you know, uh, with the Black at York uh, campaign. Do you think that it was effective? Um, do you think, um, are you all satisfied with the results? Let me, let me also maybe just say this. Uh, I, don't, I can't, I don't think I can consider myself uh, a spokesperson, you know, of the, of the caucus at this time, just, just because uh, I'm not really a student anymore. Um, but I would say largely, I would not be satisfied with with the efforts that the university uh, has made in response to the demands um, of the of the caucus. I think that there have been, there's been a lot of conversations, which conversations can be considered positive, right? Like you know, these are conversations that were not had prior to. Um, however, in terms of concrete action, we've seen a lot of committees that are being that have been formed. We've seen a lot of advisory boards that have come to the forefront um, and a lot of, you know, researching and a lot of planning and a lot of, you know, let's see what other institutions are doing. Let's look at our peer institutions. Um, but, but there seems to be a sort of hesitancy within administration to, to just make a, a stand and to just sort of stand up for something. And, you know, we've had conversations about the Fulbright statue and not to get too deep into that, but one of the things that I've, that I've just been looking for is for there's to be the decision and uh, this, just them to make a stance. And when we're talking about something like anti-racism, you can't be on the fence with anti-racism. You can't, you can't try to play both sides with anti-racism, you know? And, and it's also anti-racism is something that is not political. And that's one, one, of, the, one of the very big downfalls of public land-grant institutions is that they're inevitably tied into politics. Um, and they're bending to the whims of our state legislatures who have no idea what it's like to be a student at the University of Arkansas in 2021. They may have been a student at the University of Arkansas in 1980, but they do have no idea of what it's like to be a student right now. And so you see just the bureaucracy. You see the levels of, of passing the buck. 
you know, if, if it wasn't the, the chancellor's decision, then it was the president's decision. If it wasn't the president's decision, then it was the state legislature's decision. Or the oh, wait, board. No, no, no. It, it was the board of trustees' decision. But even if the board of trustees makes a decision, then the state legislature has passed a law that says you can't move statues without their approval. Right. And so there are so many levels to this institution that it's gridlocked, that, that we are not, it is not designed for us to be able to infiltrate or not even, maybe not even infiltrate, just, just to, just to make change. It's not possible to for us to exist as fully, as full, as full people, as full beings, right? Exactly. Any parting words, Warrington, did you like to share with us? I think if I had any, any parting words as a young person, um, I think that we, we have a duty to, to raise our voices and to use them. And we may not necessarily be right all the time, but we lean on our elders to, to show us the way whenever we do get lost. And so if I, if I had any parting words, it would be, you know, young people to, uh, you know, start, start using your voice more, start being more courageous to, to step out there and, and want to be heard. Um, whether you feel like you're, you have it all together or not, you know, just being able to put yourself out there before you even have it all together will be, you know, a very valuable experience for you to learn, you know, for the next time. Um, and if there are any, you know, senior members or our seasoned uh, brothers and sisters out there, you know, sometimes it, it is okay to let the young folk get in the front. Um, you know, I know that sometimes it is one of those things where, you know, we have to show, show us the way. Um, but then there is also a time where, you know, we can be strong and we can be able and we can use our, our youth uh, to our advantage, our creativity and our innovation. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, and, you know, of course, you, all the guidance going forward that you will need and uh, uh, the best of luck so that you can make lots of money and just give it to black organization. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ben. We'll stay in touch and I'll keep you updated. All right. Great. Thank you, Warrington. Undiscipline is hosted by me, Karee Banton, with help from Warrington Sibri. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>